This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our our study this morning in God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our time together. Father, as we study your word today, we are reminded that this is not human opinion, but this is the expression through God the Holy Spirit of your eternal thinking and your eternal will, that you worked in a miraculous way through the writers of Scripture so that without abrogating their individual personalities or writing style, that God the Holy Spirit uh, so superintended their writing that they wrote your will and that it is without error in the original languages. And, Father, we are reminded that this is written for us, for our benefit, to teach and instruct us on how to think and how to live. And as we study this morning, we are reminded that that so much of what we read in Scripture seems impossible to us because in our own ability and our own efforts, we can't fulfill these mandates. They are indeed supernatural commands that can only be fulfilled through supernatural means, which is through God the Holy Spirit. So, Father, though, the issue for us is our volition, our taking responsibility for living our lives by walking by the Spirit, and we pray that we might be challenged in this way this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. We're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. We are in the last part of this section, which began back in uh, verse 21. From verse 21 down through verse 48, Jesus is contrasting the righteousness that is expected by God from his people with the righteousness that has been minimized and diminished by the teaching of the Pharisees. This has become popular teaching and popular belief in Second Temple Judaism for the previous century or two. The Pharisees taught a system of interpretation from the law that might make it somewhat easier for people to fulfill. Now, in some ways, you might think, well, gosh, it seems like their system of interpretation was a lot harder because it was based on so many additional uh, commands and mandates. And while that is true on the one hand, on the other hand, what they were doing was minimizing or rationalizing down the mandates so that they were achievable in some sense through the work of the flesh. Uh, 
There are six examples that Jesus uses in this section, and each of these builds towards a climax so that the last one, the one that we're studying today, deals with the principle of love as mandated in the Old Testament. Now, love is still mandated in the New Testament. There are some differences between the Old Testament mandate and the New Testament mandate, but nevertheless, uh, it is still there. But each of these other examples expresses something about love for other people. For example, the first example that Jesus used related to murder, murder is obviously the opposite of love. This is why Jesus also is able to go beyond just the superficial mandate to not commit physical murder to show that what is also a part of that command has to do with the mental attitude. For he goes on to say that uh, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whoever says to his brother, Rakah, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of the judgment of uh, Gehenna. And so he's focusing there on the mental attitude, which is a violation of love. Love is ultimately, as we'll see, the love that is taught in the scriptures for believers is first and foremost a mental attitude. So obviously murder then both in terms of overt murder as well as mental attitude sins of hatred, anger, and antagonism are also a violation of, uh, of love. The second example in terms of adultery uh, is also a violation of the mandate of love, for it is love that should be at the core of a marriage union, and when uh, sexual immorality takes place, it violates the foundational law of love. It violates that mental attitude. So he deals with two examples. First, the example in terms of what real adultery is. It's not only something overt, but again, it affects a mental attitude of lust, which violates the mandate for for love in the Old Testament in terms of a mental attitude. And secondly, in in relationship to marriage. And then in verse 33, Jesus deals with the example of, of, of swearing falsely. We looked at that. And that has to do with how one is, uh, is loyal, expresses his loyalty and his love to God. And then we have the uh, fifth example, which we addressed last time, which deals with grace orientation toward others and uh, humility towards others. And this, again, is uh, an example of how we show love to others, even those who are in antagonism to us. And so each of these is an example of, of the final command that Jesus is going to address and how it's been distorted by the, uh, by the Pharisees. And so we come to the first verse in this section, Matthew 5.43, where Jesus cites an example of the oral law, the, the oral tradition that is being taught by the Pharisees. And he says again, uh, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, the word here, as we'll see in our study for love, is the verb agapao. 
The cognate noun for that is agape, and this focuses on a mental attitude love. We'll delve a little deeper into what the Scripture teaches about divine love as it's supposed to be the model for human love as we go through the study. Now, this is based on a passage in the Mosaic Law and the Torah, Leviticus 19.18. And I want you to notice there's something that is not listed in the command and in Leviticus 19.18. I'll uh, read the whole verse, although the quote just comes from the last part of the verse. In Leviticus 19.18, Scripture says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. Just a note there, you have an overt sin, taking vengeance, and the mental attitude sin that lies behind it in terms of bearing a grudge or resentment or mental attitude of vindictiveness. I point that out because this is showing that the law of Moses did not just focus on externals, but also focused on an internal mental attitude as well. But it's the last part that the Lord is quoting, which is the statement, you shall love your neighbor uh, as yourself. Now, notice that there's something that's left out here. Let's go back and look at verse 43. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where does it say hate your enemy in the Old Testament text? It doesn't say that. This was an addition that was part of the, had become part of the oral law or the tradition of the Pharisees by this time. Uh, though it is not uh, stated anywhere in the Old Testament that we are to hate our enemy, that is an accurate representation of Second Temple rabbinical thought. In fact, we have evidence of this even from manuscripts that have been uh, recovered in Qumran, which is the location of uh, of where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and in the uh, various interpretations of the law that were found there, there is a clear statement that the Qumran community taught love for those within the community, but a hatred for those outside of the community. Now, where in the world could they get this? Well, it's always easy for people to take Scripture out of context. In the matter of hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, uh, one of the key principles is the comparison of Scripture with Scripture, uh, known as the, uh, the principle of analogy. We compare Scripture with Scripture, but even when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you always have to be careful how you compare Scripture with Scripture, because sometimes you're not really comparing the same thing. For example, in Ephesians chapter 5, men are mandated to love their wives as they love themselves. And over in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes the statement that he, he beats his own body into submission. Ephesians 5, husbands are to love their wives like their own body. Conclusion, husbands are to love their wives by beating them into submission. Now, I don't think that's quite right. See, that's an example where comparing Scripture with Scripture can lead to a false conclusion because you're not looking at the context. And this is what the kind of thing that the Pharisees would do 
Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 6, there is the commandment that Ammonites, excuse me, Ammonites and Moabites were not allowed to enter or participate in temple worship. They were not allowed to enter the assembly of the Lord because of the fact that they had opposed the Israelites as they were coming out of the wilderness at the end of the 40 years and before they entered into their land. And so in Deuteronomy 23.6, there's the conclusion, you shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. So that was misapplied in terms of hating your enemy. In Psalm 26, verse 5, uh, the psalmist says, I have hated the assembly of evildoers. In Psalm 31, 6, he says, I have hated those who regard useless idols. In Psalm 139, 21, the psalmist says, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And in Psalm 139, 22, uh, related to the enemies of the psalmist, I hate them with a perfect hatred. So these are verses that would be misapplied and used to, uh, to support the view that we're to hate our enemy. And yet that was not a part of the concept in the Mosaic Law. So Jesus is addressing this and correcting this. Now what is going on here is that, as I pointed out before, Jesus is teaching and explaining the kind of righteousness that should characterize those who will be, be participating in the kingdom. It's not a condition for participating or being in the kingdom, but in the context at the time in which Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount or, or the Sermon on the Plain in the parallel passage in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has, has been preaching that they are to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is around the corner. It is potentially coming. And therefore, they need to be prepared. Part of that preparation means, first of all, they need to repent. Now, that is a term that means to turn or to change your mind. If a person was an unbeliever in Israel at this time, then that meant that they were to turn to the gospel of the Old Testament, which was the gospel that God would provide salvation through the seed of the woman, who would redeem Israel from their sins. So there would be a need to turn to God for salvation and believe in the gospel that the Messiah, the seed of the woman, would provide salvation from their sins. Second, if they were already a believer in terms of the Old Testament gospel, then they were to turn in obedience to God because many of them had turned to idols even though they weren't literal idols, physical idols, for that had been uh, uh, removed from the culture of Israel following the Babylonian captivity and that divine discipline, which was partially for their idolatry, they were worshiping uh, more sophisticated idols of the mind. They were worshiping themselves. They were worshiping their own interpretation of the law. They were worshiping material things. Uh, they were worshiping their own success in various details of life, but they weren't worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so there's a message that those who were already believers, uh, like Simon, uh, and who recognized the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ as an infant in the temple, there were those who were already believers, uh, but they need, if they needed to turn back to God in terms of their 
uh, spiritual life, they needed to do that. If they were not saved, they needed to turn with regard to that. But those who were saved, repentance wasn't just a matter of a one-shot decision. We all know that. If any of you have ever tried to engage in any sort of program of self-improvement, whether it's a diet or whether it is uh, an exercise program or whether it's just going back to school and trying to do uh, your academics better, we know that we may make a firm commitment and decision one day to carry out a course of action, but then the next day we fail, and then we have to, as it were, repent again. We have to, uh, and then we have to apply that, and we have to be consistent. So we may go two or three days where we consistently work out or we're consistent on our diet, and then we fall off the wagon, and we have to repent again. Repentance isn't a one-shot decision. We may make a, 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 a firm commitment at some point that this is the course of action we're going to take, but then we may have to follow that up with uh, uh, repeated repentances as we go along. I believe this was the background for understanding why John the Baptist addressed the Pharisees by saying, not repent, that's not part of his command to them when the Pharisees came down to evaluate him Uh, when he was baptizing by the Jordan, he said, produce works in keeping with repentance. The works that were in keeping or consistent with repentance would be works of righteousness. Now, righteousness is one of those ideas in Scripture that has often baffled and confused uh, students of Scripture down through the ages. Scripture teaches of two categories of righteousness, One category is imputed righteousness, the righteousness that God requires us to have in order to have eternal life, in order to have an eternal destiny in heaven. We have an Old Testament example of this in Genesis 15, 6, when Scripture says that Abraham had believed God and it had been imputed to him as righteousness. So that refers to this imputed righteousness, this credited righteousness that we have at the instant of our faith in Christ, whether it was Old Testament or New Testament, we know there's an imputation of righteousness. But that imputation of righteousness doesn't guarantee a moral change. This is a problem in a number of uh, theological systems that we have in Protestant theology as well as in Roman Catholic theology that somehow regeneration changes the moral inclinations of the individual. In other words, it, it would say that their sin nature is not quite as capable as it was before they were saved. But what the Scripture teaches, and, and that muddies the water between uh, imputed righteousness and experiential righteousness. Imputed righteousness just changes uh, our basis for righteousness. It's on the basis of the righteousness we possess from Christ, not our own righteousness. But then there's experiential righteousness, which should develop in the life of the believer subsequent to salvation. He should live a certain way as a member of God's royal family in the church age. This was also expected in the Old Testament. The Mosaic law was not given as a means to gain imputed righteousness, but to describe how uh, believers in Israel were to live as God's chosen people. And so when we look at this section in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees have misinterpreted 
the Mosaic law. They have minimized it in teaching, as it were, a disobedience to the law. This takes us back to um, Matthew 5, 19, where Jesus said, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, see they're minimizing the commandments, and teaches men so, that is to break these commandments, and they were breaking them by not fully uh, implementing them or applying them, they would be least in the kingdom of heaven. See, they're still in the kingdom, but they are not, uh, they are in disobedience. They are least as opposed to those who are great. So Jesus is teaching the kind of righteousness that, that should be exhibited in the life of the believer. And part of living righteously, even in the Old Testament, involved loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, in the 12th chapter of Mark, Jesus is asked the question, what is the greatest of the commandments? And it's important to note his answer. He says, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is known as the Shema from the first word here, which is the uh, command in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear, and this is a command, means to listen up, to pay attention. And so there is that this introduction to the law in Deuteronomy Hear, O Israel, Yahweh Eloheinu, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, Yahweh Echad. Now, that is how it is often translated and has been translated that way historically. But I, the word one there, Echad, is not a word that relates to a, a singular monotheism. By a singular monotheism, I mean something related to a Unitarian monotheism that is a denial of plurality in the Trinity, a denial of multiple persons in the unity of the Godhead. One of the ways that we can demonstrate this is looking at how the word echad is used in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, or Moses comments in relation to the uh, unit, the, the marriage of Adam and Eve, he says, and the two shall become one, one flesh, echad. It is not a singularity, but it, it is a, a unity in terms of, of plurality. It's interesting that as I've done research on this, that the concept of um, uh, the, the Lord is one also indicates the idea of uniqueness. The Lord is unique or the Lord alone. And in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6, the previous verses were prohibitions against uh, idolatry or and polytheism. So contextually, the idea of the uniqueness or the aloneness of God, the Lord alone is God, uh, fits the context, and the Tanakh, the Jewish uh, Publication Society's translation of the Old Testament, the, the most recent and modernized one from uh, 1986, actually translates this, the Lord alone, not the Lord is one, which is a huge shift in the translation there because your 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 Jewish theology is based on the concept that God is a singularity. He is a unitarian 
uh, monotheism as opposed to this idea that the Christians have of a plurality in the Godhead. And, of course, that relates to love which exists eternally within the Godhead. If you have a singular monotheism, who does God love in eternity past? If God is love, as John says in First John, if God is love, who does God love in eternity past? This is one of the problems with singular monotheism is if God is love and he is alone in the, as a singularity in eternity past, then he's dependent upon his creatures to have an object for his love. This is a weakness with both uh, Protestant Unitarian theology as well as uh, Jehovah's Witnesses as well as uh, Islam. The God does, God does not have anybody to love in eternity past, so he must create in order to have uh, creatures to love. Therefore, he would be dependent upon his creatures. That violates the very concept of aseity or independence in the, uh, in the uh, character of God. So God can't be God if he's dependent upon his creatures for something. So the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, is a plurality, and this is evidenced in many ways even in the Old Testament. So that's the primary commandment. The second commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then uh, the comment is made, this is the uh, first commandment, and the second, like it, is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So in Mark, Jesus emphasizes that there's two, two basic commands. All of the, uh, the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law in its entirety of 613 commandments basically uh, reflects one of these two commandments. Either it tells you how to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or it tells you how to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus is expanding upon this in Matthew 5.44, where he says, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And then the purpose for that is given in verse 45. We'll look at this as well. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. That's the goal. Implement and apply the command to love your neighbor as yourself so that you can be recognized as a son of your Father in heaven. Now, remember, this is written and stated under the Mosaic Law. Don't read back into these statements of Matthew 5 related to being a son of God, New Testament doctrines of of adoption and sonship. That comes for the church age. He's addressing this in, in another sense to a Jewish audience under the under the age of Israel. So let's just look at the first verse. You'll note some differences. If you are using a New American Standard Bible, a New International Commentary, that's my pun for New International Version because it's really more of a paraphrase and a comment than it is a translation, or the ESV, or any of the other modern translations, RSV, New RSV, and the list, uh, the list continues. I've put the two different versions up here on the screen so that you can see the difference. 
in the King James Version and the New King James Version, there is an expanded uh, expansion to this verse. It doesn't just say, love your enemies. It goes on to say, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So you can see there's quite an addition. We're to bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us, and pray for those who not only persecute us but spitefully use us. That's the that's the addition. Now, this is what we find in the majority text, and that is probably the superior reading in this passage. The Nesalalan text or the UBS text is a shorter version and deletes that. Now, this gets into a whole area of textual criticism that I'm not going to address uh, this morning, but this is important to understand what the original would have said and the evidence, the, the, the evidence from the manuscripts uh, supports the majority text reading. So um, when we look at that, when we look at the addition there, we see that there are that the primary command is to love our enemies. The word agapao there uh, emphasizes a mental attitude, as we'll see. It's not talking about emotion or sentiment. This is one of the great problems we have in talking about love, especially in our culture, but it's true for almost any culture, is that love is, is poorly, poorly understood. It's usually thought of in terms of of, of emotion, it's in terms of sentiment, in terms of something that that is based upon the object of love. This is what why Jesus is correcting this here is because he wants us to understand that that biblical love, grounded upon the love of God, is not based on the behavior of the object of love. Secondly, he says that to bless those who curse you. The word there for blessing is the same word that we've seen earlier in our study back in the Beatitudes, the word blessed, which has to do with with, um, uh, uh, praising somebody in some cases. In other cases, it has to do with with, uh, being happy. But here it has the idea of praising, the word blessing somebody. For example, when people say uh, in the Old Testament, blessed is, is God, that is a term that is a synonym for praise. It doesn't mean that we as creatures are able to add to God's happiness, but it is, the term blessing is often used as a synonym for praising God. So we are to praise those who... Now, this goes... This is more than just a mental attitude. This is calling upon us to, to do something positive and beneficial for those who seek to destroy us, those who treat us with great hostility. That's the idea behind the word cursing. The, the Greek word is katar, kataraomai, which means to execrate, to curse, to loathe, or to express hostility towards someone. So this is someone who just uh, is always doing things antagonistic to you, somebody who spreads gossip and slander about you, somebody who just despises you, and yet our response to them is to uh, treat them in praise and to be positive towards them, not to return their attitude in kind. Further, 
Jesus says, in expanding on the concept of what it means to love your enemies, we are to do good to those who hate us. The word for hate has the idea of someone who detests you, someone who just despises you. We're to do something positive and good when that opportunity uh, presents itself. And then fourth, he says, we're to pray for those who spitefully uh, use us and persecute us. The idea there uh, of, be, of spitefully uh, using someone is the idea of someone who is treated in a uh, despicable manner, someone who is mistreated, or someone who is abused. So we are to pray for those who abuse us, who malign us, who uh, treat us in a despicable manner, and those who persecute us, those who are engaged in, if we're going to bring it right home to where we're living, engaged in, in promoting legislation or ordinances that are directed at minimizing, if not destroying, the impact of Christianity on a culture. So we are to pray for them. We are to treat them in a positive manner. Uh, this is the same idea that's expressed in terms of grace orientation in the previous example of the one who uh, is asked to carry the load of the Roman soldier, uh, carried a mile, were to carry an extra mile freely, generously, out of the uh, desire in our heart. Now, when we look at this concept of love, we have to take some time to understand it. The word on the left on the screen, agapao, represents the love that it, we find here. This is the love, the term that is used to describe God's love for all mankind. The word on the right, both of these are the verb forms. They're also cognate noun forms. The verb on the right is phileo. Now, in some passages and at some times, depending on the context, these words can be virtually synonymous. But the distinction between them is that phileo describes a more intimate love, a more personal love, someone who has a deep affection for someone. What's interesting is the word on the left uh, describes God's love for all humanity, believer and unbeliever, uh, whereas the word on the right is only used in relation to God's love for believers. Uh, when we go to passages like Romans uh, 3.21, Behold, I stand, 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, uh, Jesus is expressing in that passage his love for those to whom he is coming. And the word there is phileo. It is not agapao. So that verse is not a verse talking about salvation as it is commonly applied in our contemporary evangelical culture. Jesus is, is knocking on the door for fellowship because of his love, his phileo love for believers. The word that describes God's love for all mankind is the, really the foundation for our understanding of love. There are three passages that emphasize this. There's John 3.16, for God loved the world in this way. So the so there is not talking about the degree of his love. It's not saying for God loved the world so much. But the Greek uh, particle that's translated so actually indicates uh, manner or uh, a way in which something is done. So God loved the world in this manner so that it's using 
the, the, his, his gift of his son as an example of his love. Problem we have when we come to defining love is love's notoriously difficult to define. You look it up in Webster's or the Oxford English Dictionary or uh, any dictionary of that type, you'll find that it states that this is an emotion. But that doesn't fit what the Bible says about about God's love. It's not described as as an emotion. And even in the scripture, love is not defined as much as it is described because and illustrated so that we can grasp the concept of love because it is so foreign to us. So John 3.16 gives the example that an example of God's love, the way in which he loved us, is that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is grace in action towards those who are in opposition to God, those who have rejected him, those who do not desire a relationship with him. This is further expanded upon in Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we were nice, because we were lovely, because we desired to know him. He died for us when we were still hostile and at enmity with him. In 1 John 4.10 this is also described in this way, and this is love, not that we loved God. See, God didn't love us because we were so wonderful or because we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So these three verses give us the, the pattern, the absolute eternal model for love. It is motivated by God's own character and by his integrity. Now, the, ver- the passage that gives us the greatest description of love in the New Testament, but this is really only one, but it's the one that most people go to, is in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, part of the passage I read earlier in our scripture reading. And I want you to notice as we go through here that it is defined more by, uh, by negatives than it is by positives. Love is patient. Love is kind. Those are both negatives. It's, I mean, both positives. It's not jealous. It's a negative. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. All of those are negatives, what it's not. Uh, verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But now we have another positive. See, it's been since the beginning in verse 4 that we've, since we've had a positive. There rejoices with the truth. And then we have uh, four positives. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So we can break it down this way. Positive, positively, love is patient. The word there in the Greek is long-suffering. That relates down to what we'll find at the end, that love endures all things. It hangs in there even when things aren't going very well. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love rejoices with the truth. That's an important thing because it ties back to the concept of integrity and righteousness. It uh, rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This doesn't mean that, that love just ignores reality. This is talking about in a relationship 
Love is positive. It seeks to believe the best about the object of love, hopes for the best for the object of love, and even though things may be difficult at times and the object of love may not be uh, be returning to love, it sticks in there, hangs in there in the circumstances and endures all things. In contrast, love is not jealous. Jealousy is a form of arrogance and self-absorption. So uh, love does not brag and is not arrogant. These are both examples of being focused on self. Love focuses on the, on its object. Love does not act unbecomingly. The idea there is it doesn't act in uh, uh, inappropriate ways. It does not seek its own. In other words, it's not self-absorbed. It's not involved in self-justification. It's not provoked. Even when there is a basis for provocation, it doesn't take advantage of that. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't harbor grudges over a short time or long time. It's not going to come along five years later and say, but wait a minute, way back when you did thus and so. It doesn't harbor that grudge. It doesn't take into account past failures. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. So we have a positive that it rejoices with the truth and a negative it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This is related to an absolute character uh, quality or related to an absolute standard. The best way to understand this is to go back to our concept of the essence of God and the essence box, that God is sovereign and righteous and just He is love, and he is eternal life. He is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. He is absolute and eternal truth, and he is unchanging. He's immutable. Now, when we look at those character qualities, there are four that come together to form what I usually describe as the uh, integrity of God. His righteousness, that's his absolute standard. His justice, which is the application of that standard to all mankind. His love, which is totally consistent with that, which is the expression of his goodness and his kindness to those who are unworthy of that. Uh, Often in theology, people say, how can a loving God send his creatures to the lake of fire? They they seek to uh, make... Uh, a contrast or make love and righteousness incompatible. But Scripture teaches that love is only true love if it is compatible with God's righteousness and his justice as well as his truth. So when we define love, basically love is to, means to seek the highest and best for the object of love to seek the highest and best for the object of love. Now, when we get into difficulty here is what what do you think is the best for the object of love? That brings a, for most people, that brings a subjective quality into love. As soon as you use the term highest, you're you're bringing in some sort of a, a relative value. So how do we determine what is really the best for the object of love or what is the highest for the object of love? So love then must pre, this definition of love presupposes an external standard of righteousness. We're not doing what's best is not dependent upon what's best for me. 
I don't love you because and want the best for you because what's best for you is best for me. It's not self-centered. It's got to be best in terms of something outside of us. That is the character of God. And so when we think of the term highest and best, we have to measure that and understand that in terms of an absolute standard of righteousness. Therefore, we can conclude that love is only as valid as the integrity of the character behind it. And in one sense, we can never truly love in a biblical way just on our own. We're, we're, we're too influenced by our sin nature. We're too influenced by our own self-absorption. The only way we can ever approach this is if God indeed provides something for us. This is why Jesus distinguishes the love that is to be a part of the believer's spiritual life in John 13, 34. He says it's a new commandment. He changes the dynamic. The old commandment was to love your neighbor. That's defined as anyone in your your periphery, love your neighbor as yourself. The standard is as your, your own self-love. But here Jesus says we're to love one another. That relates to believers. It ups the ante a little bit. It's, it's not saying we shouldn't love our neighbor as ourself. That's still in passages like Galatians 5.14 and others. But we're to love one another according to a different standard, and that standard is that as Christ loved us, we're to love one another as Christ loved us. That's the standard. That's what's unique. How can we as fallen creatures, even as saved fallen creatures, ever manage to do that? Well, this is why we look at passages like Galatians 5.14. The command there that Paul is repeating is that all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want you to notice the word fulfilled there. That ought to click in your minds in relation to our passage in Matthew 5. Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And so he's talking about what it takes to fulfill the law. That is to apply the law and to implement the law. Paul uses this the same way, the way in which the law is applied, summarizing it just as Jesus did, that the second commandment, uh, summarizing the law in terms of two commandments, the second of which was love your neighbor as yourself. Paul quotes the same passage from Leviticus 19.18, and he says, uh, if you bite and devour one another, be, beware lest you be consumed by one another. In other words, interpersonal conflict is an indication that you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. What's the solution? Solution in Galatians 5.16 is to walk by means of the Spirit. Now, as you go through the next few verses in Galatians, it talks about that conflict between the Spirit and the sin nature and then gives us an illustration so that we can know what's dominating in our lives. gives a list of various things that characterize a walk by the sin nature. And then Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit, the product of a life spent walking by the Spirit is, and then he lists several qualities, but notice the first one that he mentions is love, because that's what he's talking about in context. The command was to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it on your own. It can only be done uh, through God the Holy Spirit, through spiritual growth and uh, learning the Word, applying the Word, while you are walking by the Spirit, and that produces 
uh, the fruit of the Spirit. This uh, brings us to the second verse out of the passage I quoted earlier in 1 John 4.10. John quoted that, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation or the one who died to satisfy the righteousness of God for our sins. And then verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The pattern for our love for one another is the, is God's love for us as expressed in our salvation. Now, if we implement this, if we're able to do this, then Jesus says this is for the purpose of being sons of your Father in heaven. Again, he is clearly showing, this is so critical, He's clearly talking to believers. He's not talking to unbelievers. This is one of the uh, most significant aspects in interpreting the Sermon on the Mount. Many people think that he's addressing this mixed multitude, that he's, he may be talking to his disciples, but he knows that all these other people have gathered around. Uh, they're unbelievers, or some of them may be unbelievers, so he's really, he's really addressing this in terms of the unbelievers, and that when he talks about righteousness, He's talking about imputed righteousness. But this is one of those examples that shows that he's not addressing the unbelievers that may have come up. He's still talking to his disciples as believers. They are the sons of their father. God is not the father of unbelievers. God is only the father of believers. So he's clearly addressing uh, this to those who to, to believers. He says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Now, the word here translated son is the word huios. It's easy for people to come to this verse and say, oh, this is talking about salvation. And then they'll think about a verse like John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the children of God. The word there is techna, which means a child. That's talking about salvation. That's not the word here. The word here is weos, referring to an adult son. He's talking about growing to spiritual maturity, much as he did back in 5.9, where Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. That's related to those who are announcing the gospel of reconciliation, for they shall be called sons of God. This is talking about spiritual maturity, the one who is growing to spiritual maturity and thus uh, will be worthy of rewards in the coming kingdom. And that's not talking about just New Testament. I'm not talking about church-age believer rewards in terms of judgment seat of Christ because there's going to be rewards for believers under the Old Testament system as well, uh, and which we can clearly uh, imply from the passages related to all the uh, to accountability and other things from from the Old Testament. So, then Jesus comes to his final illustration. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? It's real easy to love popular people. It's real easy to love attractive people. It's real easy to love people who are being nice to us and who care for us. What's difficult, if not impossible, is to love those who are hostile to us, to those who are antagonistic to us. And so Jesus emphasizes this. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? See, this indicates that he's talking about rewards here within an age of Israel Old Testament concept. What reward have you? So he's clearly talking to believers. 
It says don't even the tax collectors do the same. I mean, tax collectors were sort of the lowest rung in, on the uh, socioeconomic scale in, in Israel. They were just despised by the Jews as sellouts to the Romans because they were collecting taxes for, for the Romans and often used that as a way to impose uh, excessive demands upon the Jews because whatever they got in excess of what the Romans asked for, they got to pocket for themselves. So it was a system created for abuse. Verse 47, we read, And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? See, there he's applying this to those beyond simply those within their circle or those who were Jews, that they were to apply this to a broader uh, framework he says, don't even tax collectors do so. In other words, the kind of love that should characterize us is something that should distinguish us from the level of love that is manifested by the pagans around us. And then he comes to the conclusion. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this is a verse that has often puzzled me. The use of the word here is teleos, which usually means, in almost every other example in Scripture, to be complete, mature, or full. It doesn't mean flawless, sinless perfection. Yet that is how this is often taken, for it is true that our Father in heaven is sinless and flawless. But you and I can never be sinless and flawless. So how can the Scriptures be talking about perfect in the sense of sinless and flawless. Instead, what Jesus is talking about is spiritual maturity. We shall be mature. We shall have a quality in our spiritual life of uh, blamelessness and holiness. This is expected of believers, and that those terms never mean sinlessness because we still sin. The word teleos is used in the Old Testament to translate uh, uh, one one particular word, tamim. There are other words that are used that sort of are synonyms of, um, of blameless or uprightness, and they don't refer to sinlessness. Now, the examples I'm going to give you uh, don't use telios and the Septuagint. They use tamim, and it just is an example to show how God expected uh, something of believers in the Old Testament that was that meant experientially righteous doesn't mean sinless perfection. In Genesis 17:1, when Abraham was not, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, "I am all God, Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless." God isn't expecting uh, sinless perfection; He's expecting a walk in obedience. When there's failure, there's confession and restoration, but it's a life of obedience. It's parallel to experiential righteousness. The same thing is stated in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 18.13, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. This is parallel to the idea also expressed in the Old Testament that we are to have an experiential holiness or righteousness. For God said the same thing to the Israelites in Leviticus 11.45. And the last line there, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God is calling us to a life of experiential righteousness. Just like the Jews at the time of Jesus, we too are looking forward to the kingdom. There's, they, they were looking forward to, in this context, they were looking forward to the arrival of the kingdom. It was postponed because of their rejection, and Christ went to the cross, and the church age 
uh, comes now uh, in between. But we, too, are also looking for the kingdom. We have a different role and responsibility in the future kingdom than uh, Old Testament saints will have, than Jewish saints will have. But nevertheless, both are required to learn to live a life of righteousness in preparation for their role and their destiny in that future kingdom. And so this forms the framework for our understanding the application in, um, in the Sermon on the Mount for us as well. We are to grow to spiritual maturity. We are to uh, imitate the character of God, and that can only happen if we walk by the Spirit. And only then can he produce in us this kind of love, which is truly expected. So often when I teach on this, people say, oh, I'm just never going to be able to do it. This is the hardest thing to do. It's not hard. It's impossible. It can only happen if you're walking by the Spirit and pursuing spiritual maturity. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who produces this kind of a character change in us. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is addressing, is the kind of character that should be exhibited in the child of God, whether it's an Old Testament believer or whether it's a church-age believer. We are to manifest the character of God in our lives with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning, uh, to be reminded of your grace, to be reminded of the standards of your word, and to recognize that they are not unrealistic. They are standards that you have set forth because you expect them and they are achievable under the dynamics of the spiritual life in whatever, whatever dispensation we may find ourselves. In the church age, this is through our walk by the Spirit, and we must learn to constantly pay attention to that and make it a priority in our lives. And, Father, we pray for anyone here this morning who uh, hears this and may be uh, uncertain about their future destiny, may not be sure of how to get to heaven. And the Scriptures are very clear that this is based upon the work of Christ. It's not based on fulfilling all of these mandates in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not based on doing good or performing certain rituals. It's based simply upon trusting in Christ as our Savior. For he fulfilled the law in his life. He was qualified, and therefore he went to the cross as a lamb without spot or blemish. He went to the cross and died there as our substitute and for us that we might have eternal life. And so if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so to trust in him, and at that instant you have eternal life. You're born again, the scripture says, regenerate. You become a new creature in Christ, and therefore there's a new standard, uh, a new lifestyle expected of you. And this is a challenge before each of us as believers to rise to the challenge, to live according to the standards of the royal family of God, that we might exhibit God's character to the world around us. And that only comes through a walk by the Spirit and a walk according to your word. And we pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.